Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. We're going to be doing a double scripture reading here this morning. The sermon series continuing that we've been doing throughout this school year is from Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, and you'll see something there about lots of different languages being created. And as we're emphasizing Tower of Babel, as we're emphasizing Pentecost Sunday, as we're emphasizing our international partnerships team, it made all the sense in the world to have our scripture reading read in various languages that are represented with our congregation. So I will, if you're able, ask you to stand for two different runs through Genesis chapter 11. We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. This is in Cree, a language spoken in West Africa, Ghana. Genesis 1. Genesis 11, verse 1 and 2. Sabrino, na asasi sunina kakasa bako. Na insinfuako no ara na na obiara diye juma. Bray ah what they want, eni che epue no. Wakoto asasetra biwa sena asasaso. Na watana oho. This is Spanish, versos 11 del Génesis. Se dijeron unos a otros, ven, hagamos ladrillos y cocinémoslos bien. Usaron ladrillos en lugar de piedra y alquitrán en lugar de mortero. Entonces dijeron, vamos. Edifiquémonos una ciudad con una torre que llegue hasta los cielos para que podamos hacernos un nombre. De lo contrario, seremos esparcidos sobre la faz de toda la tierra. Genesis 11, 5 y 6 en Ocirios ipe, an os enas loos, pumilun tin idia glosa, echon archis in a canon afto, tote tiputa puske de azun a canon, venza ina adineto, yaftus. Verses 7 and 8 in German. Volauf, lasst uns hier niederfahren und dort ihre Sprache verwirren, dass keiner des anderen Sprache verstehe. So zerstreute sie der Herr von dort in alle Länder, dass sie aufhören mussten, die Stadt zu bauen. Verse 9 in Korean. Yohakesal Kogisal Onsesangi Onurul Hunchap Hage Hashigo Kudurul Sabanguru Hutok Porigeta Demune Kugosul Paberirago Puruge Teota. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Thank you to our readers. And if you could remain standing if you're able as we read one more time through Genesis 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech." <clears throat> So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord there confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Once again, friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your holy scriptures. What a joy to hear your scriptures read in all of these different languages just now as well. And Father, as we consider language and the diversity thereof, such an aspect of our humanity has bearing on the verses that were just read. So Father, give us your Holy Spirit to illumine this passage of scripture to us as we consider as a church, as we consider as human beings where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. Jesus, thank you that the center of all history, including the fulfilling inflection point of this story that we have read, is you and your crucifixion and resurrection, by which you open a new heavens and new earth to us that gives forgiveness to everybody that comes to you. Would we come to you here this morning? Oh, Holy Lord, thank you that Supremely in Jesus of Nazareth, you have come down to us. We offer this time to you in the reading and preaching of your scriptures, Jesus, in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So when we were at the Collingswood Senior Community Center right after we launched the church plant all the way through 2017, it was easier to do there. But I'm going to ask for a little bit of crowd participation right off the bat here. So you may have to speak up. If you're watching online, you can think about what you might say. What U.S. president at some point in our history said this? We have been passing through one of those great economic storms which periodically bring hardship and suffering upon our people. While the disaster only took place six months ago, I am convinced that we have now passed the worst and with continued unity of effort, we shall rapidly recover. There is one certainty in the future of a people of the resources, intelligence, and character of the people of the United States. That is, prosperity. Our economy shall, by steady improvement through research and invention, advance standards of living to the whole of our people. This will constitute the conquest of poverty. Who said that? What president? Adams, no. Johnson, no. 
Truman, no. Did I hear something way in the back there? Okay, I've heard, I've heard a couple correct answers. Herbert Hoover. So put on your U.S. history thinking cap here just for a minute. The great stock market crash of 1929 occurred that fall, right? And here we have Hoover about six months later saying, forget about it. The U.S. economy is going to do just fine from here. Now let's unpack that a little bit more. Was Hoover, in his prediction, right or wrong? No, he was not right at all. Something happened after the stock market crash called the Great Depression decade-long about huge trough for the economy, not just in the U.S., but in the world. And we can unpack a little bit more and say there are probably different layers to what Hoover is saying here. Yes, he turned out not to be correct about, hey, the economy is going to do just fine from here. But on the other hand, maybe you can't blame him too much. He's trying not to get the U.S. people to panic. A U.S. president can't very well say, we're all going to die. This is going to be horrible. Just, it's going to just get worse and worse from here. And then also, probably Hoover is trying to rescue his own political fortunes, which tanked along with the economy. FDR was elected after that. One more layer, and this is why I pulled this quote for this morning. Think about some of the words that he used. And I hear, in addition to those other layers, a little bit potentially of naivete, maybe some arrogance about what we can do as an economy, what we can do as human beings. Words like effort, resources, intelligence, research, invention, and advance. Hoover's saying, We've got all of these things, and therefore we've got this. It's all going to be fine. Now, in my opinion, all of those good things are good things, but they're never going to be perfect. And we're never going to be able to perfect our world with those things. And especially that last phrase, and this will constitute the conquest of poverty. When I hear that, I think a little bit like the dun-dun-dun, can we really say that we're going to, should, should we try to alleviate poverty in our world and in our nation? Absolutely yes. But are we able to confidently assert that we're going to eradicate it? We're going to conquer it forever. That's trying to take a bite out of a pretty big apple. And maybe this is just me, but maybe you as well. When we hear a person, especially a person with a lot of power, make the most absolute claims possible, to me, that's when things become a little scary and a little sinister and maybe a little dangerous. The more absolute the claims, the little bit scarier it might be. So we have Herbert Hoover, door number one. Door number two, Bruce Springsteen, singer-songwriter from New Jersey. I imagine that most of you haven't heard the song Leah from Devils and Dust, Bruce's 2005 acoustic repast to the bombast of 2002's Rising. It's a nice, quiet, minor pleasure in the Springsteen canon. Don't have to know a lot about the song, but I like this line. The protagonist says, with this hand I have built, and with this I have burned. Same hand. 
with this hand I have built, and with the same hand I've birthed. To me, that's our story. That's the story for us as human beings. Isn't it true that with your own hands, with all of the resources in various directions that you've been given and that you've practiced up, whether it's your money or your education or your wisdom or your skill or your status or your privilege, whatever it is, haven't you used those things both to help other people but then also to hurt them? Whether in big ways, whether it's a job, within your own families, within your social circles, it's true of us. With these hands, we have helped, and with these hands, we have harmed, we have burned. And then we can think about humanity on a larger level. Over time, when we think about people groups, when we think about nations, we've burned a lot, all the way to the ground. And we're still doing it. And that seems to be the story of who we are. When progress itself is highly problematic. And so here we have this morning the story, read in multiple languages, of the Tower of Babel. And we can think of the Tower of Babel this way. The Tower of Babel is the origin story for humanity of our collective hubris. If you've been following along the sermon series this year at Liberty Collingswood, Genesis, we have one more Genesis sermon for the school year, and then we'll do something else during the summer. But we've gone from Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth, including us, all good, Genesis 1, Genesis 2. Starting with Genesis 3, our first parents fell. They ate the fruit, Adam and Eve. And scholars will say that Genesis 3 all the way to here in Genesis 11, the fall didn't just happen. Things didn't just get worse in Genesis 3. But since then, we've kept falling and kept falling and kept falling and kept falling. First transgression, Genesis 3. Cain kills Abel, Genesis 4. Flood happens later after that. And so this climax is not just individual against individual, but a collective humanity falling again, and we're scattered. The primeval history, it's been called, pretty much wraps up here. Where do we go? You could say from one perspective that the Tower of Babel isn't all bad. Maybe from the language of Hoover, okay, there's a lot of advancement going on. That's probably good for human beings, right? But an original ancient reader would hear the dun-dun-dun when we see all the way in verse 2 that this occurs in the land of Shinar, which most of us may not know where that is, but, but that's where ancient Babylon is to come. Those are the prototypical bad guys in the Old Testament scriptures. Wait a second. Shinar? Babel? Babylon? Maybe this isn't going to be so great after all. And so the verdict of judgment from God comes in here. Human beings, humanity, on one hand, we're really, really awesome. But then on the other hand, we're fatally flawed. There's a fly in the human ointment. And if the denouement of Genesis chapter 11, Tower of Babel, is that there's a scattering of nations and confusion of languages. Well, good thing we have all that solved when nobody's fighting with any other, anybody else anymore and there's no confusion, there's no division. It's not true. 
we're still living out of this story, aren't we? But it's not the only one. It's not the only one. This is not the last story, because in God's story, his history that he reveals to us in the scriptures, in Jesus of Nazareth, crucified and resurrected, God, through his Son and by his Holy Spirit, is doing nothing less than picking up the pieces of the Tower of Babel and putting it all back together again. For a new humanity and a new mission internationally, as through God's people, the church, what had been scattered in disunity and all of the beautiful diversity of our people groups and our world, making a comeback once again. And that's our call, and that's our story. So two parts from here, Tower of Babel. Let's find ourselves in this story, and then let's ask, where do we go from here? Finding ourselves in this story. I used to be a young preacher, but what I tell young preachers now is, especially in this cultural moment, when we preach sermons, among other things, think of yourselves as world builders, where when people preach now, we shouldn't be saying, hey, here's a good idea over here, or a bit of comfort over there, a little tidbit here, a little tidbit there. It is our calling as ministers under God to proclaim the scriptures in such a way that it's not just little tidbits, but here is an overall framework, a heuristic, a world, a worldview out of which we interpret all things about our lives. And we ask both to Christians and to those skeptics and still examining faith, is this not, as we find and encounter God's true word and his true stories in the scriptures, doesn't this explain all of the beauty and all of the mess of our world, including here? The Tower of Babel is not just this novel curiosity tucked somewhere in the scriptures, but it's a Rosetta Stone for explaining our world today. And so, yes, like I mentioned, from one perspective, not all bad what's going on in the Tower of Babel. Let's look again verses 3 and 4. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. From the good side of things, they don't want to be scattered, and who can blame them? You know what happens if you're an ancient people that's scattered and thinned out? You're more vulnerable. So for safety and security, it's actually not a bad idea to try and stay together. And there's ingenuity in building here, advancements in technology, and building a city. From one perspective, all of those things are great. And they say, we want to make a name for ourselves. And look, this is graduation season. I've been talking with other people, not just parents, but including parents. It feels like end-of-year activities, whether school or work, we're in the middle of trying to cram three years, including two lost ones, into one season right now. Schedules are totally crazy. And so chances may be even that you might be at a graduation ceremony, whether it's elementary, middle, high school, graduate school, college, friend, neighbor, whatever it is. And there's going to be keynote addresses, commencement speeches. Chances are nobody's going to say, whatever you do to the graduating class or group, don't make a name for yourself. And in fact, people are probably going to say the opposite. And I want that for my own kids. 
Use it for good and not for evil, obviously. But yeah, make a name for yourself. Do good things in the world. That ambition is great. So not all bad. And we even see here as well an impulse to connect with God, with the living Lord, making this tower. Now, I think for maybe at least a few of us, when we think tower, we might think perhaps of castle, tower, maybe like the White Castle restaurant with the little cylinder and the little turret on top, or maybe Leaning Tower of Pisa. Yeah, it's leaning, but it's this, this long, tall cylinder. It's probably not what this tower is. Instead, scholars are pretty unified in saying this is a ziggurat, which is a square footprint, kind of like a square pyramid. And what ziggurats are made to do is they taper off towards the top and they have a giant staircase. So in a real sense, what this Tower of Babel is, is a stairway to heaven. Reaching to the top of the heavens to try to connect with God. And as human beings, the Bible says, and I believe this to be true, we are all born, no matter what the period, no matter north or south or east or west or what people group, we are made with God's image in us. And we have this impulse to say, hey, we're not alone here. There is a God above us. So Tower of Babel reaching out. But then we have the turn in verse 5. If you know, for example, Shakespearean sonnets and otherwise, sometimes sonnets will have maybe two-thirds of the way through the sonnet, through the poem, going in one direction, then there's a turn. And you get an additional perspective that either complements or changes the perspective of what's come before. Tower of Babel, everybody, this is going to be great, through verse 4. But then the turn comes in verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Irony. God says, human beings, you think you're so good, you think you're so high, for us to have a connection, I've still got to come down to you. You can't get all the way there on your own. And ironically, God still judges. There's some transgression of a boundary here. And isn't it true for us as human beings? where the more we try to tell ourselves that we are unlimited, whether individually or as peoples or nations, there are no limits, no constraints on us. The more we try to transcend, the more we transgress. The more limitless we think we are, the more dangerous we become. That's actually a way to read the story of the fall here in Genesis. Crossing boundaries. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are first parents of first fruit. God tells them, you can eat anything here of any fruit, of any tree in the Garden of Eden, but of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And what do Adam and Eve say with the help of the serpent? Ah, I want that one. And that boundaries cross. We had that crazy passage in Genesis chapter 6 with uh, Nephilim and the sons of God marrying the children of men, the daughters of men, whatever else that means. And there are different interpretations of it. There are some boundaries between humanity and God that are crossed. Or Kyle Connect with the end of the Noah story a couple of weeks ago in Genesis chapter 9. 
Ham doing something to or with Noah, potentially Noah's wife as well, that crossed boundaries. It's in our nature. We take things too far. And go back and think for a moment about technology and advancement and building stuff and making cities. Those very often are places of great exploitation and mechanisms of exploitation as well. Or think about the, the advancement of technology specifically. A couple of different industries, pretty much at every period of human existence, that have been early adopters of leveraging new technologies, sex and military. Oh, there are some new technologies coming on the scene. How can this be leveraged, this technology, for sexual transgressions and fulfilling people's sexual desires in any way they want as soon as we can, as conveniently as we want? And if you go back and do a little bit of history there, it's not just the internet. But it was phones, it was newspapers, it was printing press, it was the Roman postal service, and paintings in the ancient times. Then also with military. Hey, this technology is really cool. You know what we can do with it? And I'm not criticizing military in a general way at all, but isn't it interesting that, hey, how can this be used for defense, but then also for harm? There's something about how we're built where we'll take anything and go too far, including personally. Whatever we have inside, whatever character, whatever resources, whatever privilege, whatever education, with these hands we have built, and with these hands we burn, we harm. And so, yes, God judges, verses 6 and 7. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. Irony again. That let us, first the, the human beings are saying, Come, let's build a tower, let's build a city. And here we have, Come. Let us, God says, come down and judge. And the irony is, the one thing that humanity here was trying to avoid, staying together, not being scattered, not being dispersed, that's what's happening. End of the passage, verses 8 and 9. So the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And the punchline is itself that name, Babel. It can go in a couple different directions. Babel is similar to other words in this ancient Near Eastern context, where it can kind of mean gate of the gods, tower of Babel, ziggurat to the heavens, gate of the gods. Bob, door, El, also in Semitic languages, Hebrew, El can mean God. Elohim, for example, door of the gods. But then more specifically in the Hebrew language, it's better translated as confusion. Mixed up. Scattered. And I think that's on purpose. What you think is so awesome? Human enterprise building even a gateway to the gods. At the end of the day, we're just a confused, scattered mess. So where do we go from here? I think we should recognize, and again, 
Should we use things for good rather than evil? Yes. Is there a good sense in which we should make a name for ourselves and engage in human enterprises in a ton of different ways? Of course. But progress is never pure. And there's always a bill to pay as long as we live in a fallen world where damage accrues and it gets worse. Isn't this a reason that, hey, maybe we should ask God for help because we mess so many different things up? Let's recognize the futility on our own with this hand we have built, with this hand we have burned. Let's recognize the reality that if the origin story of our collective hubris and arrogance here in Genesis chapter 11, confusion, scattering, division among peoples, still going on. And we talk a lot at Liberty Collingswood about the tribalization and polarization of our world. Here it is. But that's not all. In the midst of this story, God is building a better and bigger one. We mentioned last week how it seems like there is a decision here to put the Tower of Babel story in the middle of a larger genealogy before which Tower of Babel we already see different language groups and peoples in different places, but we go straight from Babel to the end of a genealogy that leads to Abraham. The primeval history ends, but now we're getting to the good stuff of God creating the nation of Israel beginning with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to be a showcase people to the nations of God's grace and mercy and holiness and truth and justice. Once again, God is doing a new thing. And it's no coincidence that at the very beginning of Genesis chapter 12, God tells Abraham, Abram at that point, I'm going to make your name great. You see here at Tower of Babel, they're trying to make a name for, ourself, for themselves, for ourselves. God says to Abram, I'm going to give you that name, and I'm going to make your name great. And just as the nations are scattered and against each other, in you, Abram, all the nations of the earth will now be blessed, because God is doing a new thing. And that's the good news. After Babel, while we try to transcend on our own, transcendence actually descends. We can connect with God again, but it's by God's gracious condescension, not by our own effort and goodness and ingenuity. And that motif is fulfilled, Jesus of Nazareth coming, when supremely God has come down in Jesus, where the dwelling of God will be with man again, where the word became flesh and God made his dwelling among us. And this Jesus came down in his person, incarnation, but then also came down in his work, crucifixion, where Jesus took the form, the very nature of a servant, and humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, and canceled the debt for sin. So that we see the God of the universe revealed in the Son, who is humble and serves who cuts down every impulse to human hubris at its knees, who says this is how power is to be used and exercised, not against others, not against the weak, not against the broken, but for them. And let us be swept up into that motion. There's still judgment. When God came down in judgment here at Babel, that line of judgment is fulfilled and climaxed on the sun. So that any and all that come to this Jesus by faith are able to be assured and know that assurance here this morning. Take that step here this morning. The debt for your own sin, your own burning, 
is canceled. And the living Lord, through Jesus, is pleased to call you friend. Jesus says, I'm glad to be with you. I have settled the debt. And it's by grace that God achieves for us, through Jesus, coming back to God, that we could never achieve on our own. Because we burn too much. Because we're sinners. And it's not only good news for us individually, but God says to the church, now it's time for us to rebuild. And for generations, Christian thinkers and scholars, our fathers and mothers in the faith, have seen a through line from the Tower of Babel through Jesus crucified and resurrected to Pentecost. It's Pentecost Sunday. And this Pentecost Sunday remembers all those years ago. Pentecost was originally a holiday on the Jewish calendar, but the first sermon in the history of the Christian church is given then, after Jesus is crucified, resurrected, and ascended, at the very beginning of the book of Acts, when the disciples are saying, we don't know what to do, we're really scared. We've been given this commission by Jesus to go to the nations, but Jesus is gone. It's just us. But the Holy Spirit descends and does a good work with reference to Babel. I'll go ahead and read a few verses now from Acts chapter 2. I know we're mostly through a sermon when listening energy dwindles, but bring it back up. Spirit, illumine this reading from Acts chapter 2 and think about how this redresses Babel. When the day of Pentecost arrived, the disciples were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And there they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and res residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and non-Jews, proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does it mean? Well, it means that Pentecost, and as the Holy Spirit fills the church, is the anti-Babel, is the reversal, is God's picking up the pieces that were broken and fallen in Babel and putting a new humanity back together. And that gives us a new mission. Jesus said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you as Jesus is with us to the very end of the age. And that gives us the call even here in our little corner of one state in one nation for a little while to be a part of this call and to appreciate its beauty, 
to be a part of the worldwide movement of the Church of Jesus Christ, practicing unity under God. That includes racial reconciliation. That includes celebrating our diversity. That includes pursuing unity under the one Lord Jesus, who is Lord of all of the nations, to come together as one beautifully and to go to all of the nations and say, here is the healing principle and person that our world needs to reverse Babel and to see that as beautiful. So you could actually draw a line from Babel through Jesus to Pentecost all the way to the new heavens and the new earth. When one day the mission of the church, whether locally or internationally, will cease. And this is a set of verses that I preached on on Easter Sunday. I, I look forward to coming back to them here on Pentecost Sunday. A scene of worship in heaven. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall rule forever. So the gospel comes back to Babel and says, you are not the end. And that's why if you're here this morning as a follower of Jesus, you need to care, you need to contribute, and you need to pray for the work of the gospel around the world. As more are told, as the good news of Jesus is shown, both in word and in deed, and we'll hear more from our international partnerships team about how we're trying to do that at, here at Liberty Collingswood. If you're a non-Christian or still wrestling with the things of God, you might think, well, Christian mission, that's so paternalistic and we're just exporting cultures upon other people. It's probably bad for our world. Sometimes it has been. But the majority report is the opposite, where the church has lived out the gospel well, this impulse of power through service, because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, to help and to heal and to bring people back to God, to unify folks together. And it's kind of interesting that there are many scholars, and this is where we're going to begin to wrap up, who are not friends of Christianity, that would yet say, historically speaking, the most truly international and multicultural movement or organization or institution in the entire world throughout history is the Church of Jesus Christ. Again, we haven't always done it right. And we have plenty to repent of. But a truly international, multicultural body, it's the church. And to compare to a couple other religions, not picking on these two specifically, but Islam, for example, has trouble doing that. And as Nation of Islam in the late 20th century here in the U.S. among black Americans took hold, there are many in the Middle East Muslims that would say, we don't want anything to do with Nation of Islam because they're not Islamic enough, culturally speaking or Buddhists in the Far East. And this is not my words, but theirs. They'll look at some California Buddhists and say, that's actually not the real deal. You just want to have your avocado toast and eat it too. Let me show you about what real Buddhism is. And it's a totally different thing, and you need to come culturally in this direction. But it's beautiful, on the other hand, to look at American Christianity, and all of the varieties of African Christianity, and all of the varieties of Far Eastern Christianity, and say, two things are true. 
They're loving the same Jesus. They're living in obedience to the same scriptures. But the American Christianities, they look really American. African Christianity is really African. Far Eastern Christianity is really Far Eastern. And that's where the beauty is, which gives us hope for the world. Even here, this is the one thing that will help us to use power better, to recognize our limits, to repent and find relief from the judgment of God for everything that we've burned, for us to ask God for help and say, let's build again. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.